This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Series XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Usain, Director of the Center for Leadership here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, and I'm with my friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein, who are responsible for the McNulty Leadership Program, also at our school. You know where to find us. We are Channel 132. You can follow us on Twitter as well, but in the meantime, just want to say hello to my friends and colleagues, Anne and Jeff. How are you both, Anne? Great, you? Mike. Thank you. And you? How are you, Mike? I am good. Jeff, I bet you got the same answer. Yep, I'm better than Anne. <laughs> oh, he <laughs> <Okay>. does that. <laughs> I know. Hey, we're not competitive at all. No. <laughs> all right, so Jeff, I'm going to pick on you just to get going. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> this was the week that was. Well, what have you got from the last week, Jeff, that bears on leadership in action that's who we are well i mean i think mike every week is is full of those opportunities uh for leadership in action uh you know and, and whether we're thinking about our our students at the university who are wrapping up finals this week and who have demonstrated uh just an incredible amount of adaptability and resilience as they engage <laughs> in, in the the school year or the really exciting news that a vaccine is beginning to roll out um, and, and that we will, we, it seems like we will muddle through the beginning of the distribution a little bit, but um, good news all around there. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm holding on to a sense of accomplishment uh, within this week. Though. Oh, Jeff, that's always such a good statement about how if we're not optimistic in a leadership position, nobody else will be. So there's a bright light at the end of a very dark tunnel. I like that. Anne, how about you? All right, I've got one, and Jeff's uh, heard this, but he'll bear with me. We have uh, a colleague of ours sent out an email to the school, and in her opening line, she said, good-humoredly, good riddance to 2020. <laughs> that, that line just caught me because I realized that you know, although 2020 has been a really difficult year and for, you know, many a tragic year, I just realized that, you know what, time is precious. And this is a historic and it's a precious moment. And we have the opportunity to look back on the year, do an AAR after action review <laughs> and find the meaning and the learning that will equip us moving forward. So. I, it's been a difficult year, and it's also been a wonderful year, as Jeff said, of resilience and opportunity to learn. I like it. I'm already feeling better having heard from the two of you. And just <laughs> to paraphrase, right? I, 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 totally. It's well, always a, hey, listen, talking about leadership is always a, a pick-me-up. I would like to reference one of our guests who's been on the show a couple of times who is fond of saying, uh, when you lose time, you never get it back. Good time to take stock, use the time well. My, my quick summary is uh, of the past week is the many, many conversations that people are wrapped up in. I'm sure you and our guests who we're about to bring in on how you're going to get through in, a, in an affirmative sense, the holidays ahead. So maybe we'll come back to that 
an important topic. We want to make the best of our holidays. In the meantime, let me bring our special guest onto the show here. Uh, Doug Holliday, welcome to Leadership in Action. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be with you all. So, Doug, it's a, a real privilege to have you here, maybe especially in the last week of 2020. Your book is directly relevant to what we've just said and to so many concerns that our listeners have had in the months with COVID-19 and all. And your new book is called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. And I have to say, speaking maybe too personally here, I've been looking for meaning um, in work and life like a lot of other people um, in, in the dark weeks we've been through. And your book, I found, um, uh, was really helpful to me personally, and I think it will be to our listeners. So, Doug, um, let me just Thank mention, you. Uh, you, were, you had an amazing lifetime of experience yourself, including serving at Goldman Sachs as an executive. Uh, you founded a group called Path North. We'll talk about that. You worked in, in uh, the White House for President Ronald Reagan. Uh, and now you're, of course, a, a professor at Georgetown University, where you're teaching an MBA course on how to think about success in life and business. And that is the topic of your book. So let, let me just jump in with really your almost, I think it is your first chapter after an introduction of uh, telling your story, telling your stories. So uh, Doug, over to you. Just uh, give us in capsule form your own story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for what you all do, the encouragement you bring to lots of people. And I really thank you for the chance to be with you. Uh, so my story is interesting. I didn't even realize this, Mike, until I talked to my publisher at one point. Um, and my publisher said, why, Doug, do you care about these things? You've, you've done them your whole life from high school to college. You create mm -hmm. forums where people can really explore what matters most. Um, and I, I started puzzling over that because I had done it at Goldman Sachs, at the White House when I was ambassador, the South Africa State Department and private equity. I've always gathered leaders together to explore. The reason was I, I discovered this. My father grew up in a small town and, and one of my themes of the story of the book is we're all born into a story. And that story, whether consciously or not, shapes how we view life, how we define success, meaning, failure, a family. All these things are derivatives of um, this, this story we were born into. So my father was in a small town in Mississippi. His mother was very religious. They had a small company. Mother was very religious, went to church all the time. To spend time with her, because he didn't see her much, he would go to church. But he realized that it wasn't a welcoming place for him because he asked a lot of questions. So at about 13, he self-declared that he was an atheist. And he set about that journey. He loved ideas, loved to think. But I was basically born into a family where my father said, didn't believe in a supernatural, didn't believe in God. So, but we were very, but in a funny way, it, it opened the world to me. You know, um, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, people have not reject, rejected faith, but rather a poor caricature of it. I meet so many people who mm. say, oh my gosh, that priest was terrible and the rabbi, and that has shaped their whole view of religion. I was a blank slate, but I was really curious. 
So I realized what I've been trying to do my whole life unconsciously is to create the kind of forums where people like my father, who was curious, but as C.S. Lewis would call it, a seeker, uh, could be comfortable. And that's been my story, you know, through everything. That's been a, a thing. Uh, uh, Doug, wonderful. Uh, and then take your story into your decision to write the book. So it, it's a, it stems directly yeah. from your story, but just help us understand why you chose to write the book. Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, the Hamilton musical, uh, a friend of mine pointed this out. You know, I think there's a song in there that says, I just want to be in the room. And I've had the privilege of being in the room with so many remarkable prime ministers, presidents, CEOs, all kind of people, but not in a typical way, in a way where I've understood their story, their longings, their 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 feelings of inadequacy, their failures. And and a good friend of mine, Steve Case, the founder of AOL, one of my best friends, um, Steve said, I know you don't want to write a book, but you've got to capture some of these incredible stories. And, it, and then, he, then it, the thing he said really helped me. He said, Doug, why don't you write it for your three boys? And if it goes no further than that, go ahead. Because I said, I was thinking, Mike, does the world need another book? There's so many good things out there and there's so many bad things out there, but could I make a contribution? And I wrote it and I started saying, this is pretty good because it, it's my authentic voice. I'm not trying to, I think there's so much phony baloney stuff that's being peddled to people. This really was born of, of really seeing the pain and disappointment and the disillusionment. So many of the people I knew who had public positioning, had money, had success, notoriety, but they were empty. They were what T.S. Eliot would call the hollow men. And to extent some women, but mainly the men. So I, I felt like if it can be useful as a tool for uh, leaders to explore what really matters most, uh, because sadly, and part of the naming of the book, uh, rethinking success. Part of the part of the challenge is, Mike. The unintended consequences of great success is usually the opposite of what you think. That you think. Yep. I mean, according to the data, if you ask people, do they have enough money? Uh, whether they make twenty four thousand a year or a billion, everyone said the same thing. I would be really happy and content if I had twice the amount I make. So it's, Doug, an illu it's an illusion, and I'm trying yep. to really debunk the illusion. Doug, the book is a direct extension, as you've just said, of, of your own story. Let me mention to listeners here the, the, the full title. It is Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. And as I read the title and discovered in the book, uh, it's a really good idea to work out the meaning in work and in life uh, before we get too far along. So with that, Anne, why don't you pick up the baton here? Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Doug, for, for being here. Thank um, you. May I, may I just clarify, did I hear you right? Your father was an atheist, but your mother was very religious. No, no, his mother was very his religious. His mother, okay. So he, so he would go to church because that's how he could spend time with her. And then he realized it was not a welcoming environment because questions weren't, weren't really valued. He right. felt at least that was his view of it. And then in your immediate family with your with your mother. Yeah, she um 
Uh, I think she was very secular as well. She's a mm -hmm. great soul, a magical person, fun, but was not curious in the same way that he was. Mm -hmm. And it, it really troubled him, and because later in my teens, I was curious too, mm -hmm. and I met a, an older gentleman, and we started talking about faith and theology and philosophy, and it was not in an institutional sense, but, a, you know, he put me on the books, like, by Pascal and, and existentialists, and I started reading the Bible and doing all these things. And I, I discovered a path for me, a, a spiritual path of faith. And my father was really shocked by that, to be honest, and uh, <laughs> didn't know quite what to do with the son now. That, But, you know, a lot of times we do the opposite of our parents, but probably there was a little rebellion in there, too. Mm -hmm. So did you end up studying uh, religion or philosophy? In I, I did. I did. I, uh, you know, I've been very eclectic in my interests, but I, I, I got a master's at Princeton in philosophy and theology, mainly theology. I just wanted to ground it uh, in uh, my thinking, but I didn't want to be a cleric or a priest or any of that. I, I, from a very, very early in my journey, I really felt the, the, um, I love what St. Francis said. He said, the, the, the challenge of life is to be a person of God, but a, per, but be in the world. And I really wanted to be in the world. I wanted to bring a worldview of values and faith into the marketplace. Cause I felt like that is where we need to really translate uh, these things, not in a way of imposing religion, but bringing value to foreign policy, bringing human rights to discussion of, of policy, making these things very central. So, and the same thing is on Wall Street. I felt like so many issues when I was at Goldman Sachs came down to values. You know, what, what, what is the culture of this firm? One of the things that attracted me to Goldman, frankly, was when one of the partners told me in my interviewing process, we that was at this point before they went public, but we don't go hostile on a client. If, mm -hmm. if you're our client, we really are on your side of the table. And I said, you know, that cost, they told me that cost us a lot. We lost a lot of money because of that, but we gained it on the other side because people trust us. And where Goldman went you. from there is another story, but but that was at least the, the, and I, that was one of the things that drew me there. I said, I like that. I like any place where someone and draws a line and they say, this is important. And I even asked my MBA students uh, that question because I feel like smart, capable, accomplished people want optionality so they never draw a line. So I asked my MBA class every year, when did you ever draw a line where it cost you something? And it's really interesting. Out of about 40, I'd say five can remember a time, if they're honest. Good. All right. You, Anna, well, Anna, Doug, we're going to stay with you, but I do need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Husseem. I'm here with uh, my good friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. Our guest today is Doug Holliday, author of Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. So, and one more go around. Yeah. All right, and very short, because I want to get Jeff's uh, voice in here. But Doug, what I'm also hearing from you is that meaning is not necessarily given, 
but rather found. Yes. And, and I and I think that's beautifully captured in your opening or opening quote from Proust and remembrance yeah. of things past. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. So it's yeah. what we bring, not what is given. A absolutely, Anna. And, and, and you're hitting upon something that I think is really important to differentiate. Because I think we live in a culture where people are chasing happiness. I'm not a big fan of happiness. I'm a basically happy person, but I think a lot of that's genetic. A lot of that is the luck of the draw. But meaning is where you want to go. Meaning is the absolute essential. Happiness comes and goes. That's circumstantial based on, you know, whether I got a raise, my child got into a good college, blah, blah, blah. That comes and goes. If you doubt me on that, those of us who have children, I have three boys, if you said to me, and hey, Doug, did you, is it, is it a happy experience for you being a parent? I'd say, well, uh, yes, no. <laughs> but if you say to me, if you turn the question, say, Doug, is that a, was that meaningful? Oh my gosh, the most meaningful experience of my life. So I would urge the, your listeners to read Victor Frankl's, if they hadn't, it, Man's yeah. Search for Meaning, where yeah. he talks about the people that survived the Nazi death camps were not the physically robust. But the people that had a life of the mind, had a heart, had something they, they aspired to live for. I want to meet that granddaughter that I never had a chance to meet. I want to play the violin again. That's meaning. This idea that five ways to be happy and rich, I think is a total fraud and an illusion. And it's, it's part of our modern culture that's chasing celebrity and not meaning. Oh, thank you. Now, Jeff, get on in here. <laughs> sure. Come on, in, Come on in, Jeff. Come on in, Jeff. The water is great. Here we are, right? No, uh, no better way to end the year. Well, I, I want to stay right on this uh, this question of meaning, um, Doug. In the book, you you identify the conditions you know that that have come out of research around what a meaningful life consists of, right? And you and you yeah. point to a life that makes sense, a life that's driven by purpose. Um, and, and, and a sense that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. And, and then you add a fourth kind of condition or dimension to that, which seems especially appropriate in 2020 and seems especially yeah. appropriate as we enter this, this holiday year. So it, can you talk a little bit about this fourth condition? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's relationships. And uh, Vivek Murthy, who's, who's now coming back as, as the Surgeon General, he was interesting. When he was Surgeon General under Obama, he named not obesity, not smoking, but loneliness as the major health crisis, public health crisis of our time. This is pre-COVID-19. According to the UCLA Loneliness Index, which crazy, there is such a thing, one out of two Americans self-report they're lonely. So if leaders on this call think they're off the hook, think again. Because an Inc. survey said when they, they surveyed 3,000 CEOs, of the 3,000, one half self-reported that they were lonely and disconnected. And of that half, 61% said they're making bad decisions in their businesses because they had no one they could trust. So, so, so uh, there is, Jeff, a loneliness epidemic. We are made for relationship. Read Read Robert Putnam's book at Harvard. 
you know, bowling alone. He uses bowling as a crazy metaphor. He said people used to um, go to bowling alleys with friends and be on li in leagues. That most people at bowling alleys now are alone. And if you look at movie theaters, when we could do that, uh, you see a lot of people that are alone there. So, so we have this epidemic, and I would say to find meaning, you have to connect with others. And sadly, you know, I tell my MBA students from age 30 to 45, you start shedding relationships. You think you always have your posse, you know, it, it's not true. By 45, if you're lucky, you have one friend. And most people don't have them. So you have to invest in friends. I will not allow my class to use the term networking because it makes a commodity out of something that is magical if you do it right. So how do you have a friend? You start to explore those people you've been on the journey with. People that you can hang out with no agenda. You know, people that accept you the way you are. You know, we, we're, we're all needing that. There's a great... Um, in the book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses nine to 11, says this, I love this. Um, I think it's really amazing, Jeff. And this is 3000 years ago. It says two are better than one for they have a good reward for their toil. For if one falls, the other will lift him up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We were made for relationship. We need partners in our life. We need encouragement. We need people to sharpen us, to tell us the truth. Um, and I think that the tragedy is, and we've seen this, I don't want to get political, but seeing this craziness where you don't have people speaking the truth in your life. We have to learn as leaders at a young age to allow that. And if I could add one more thing to that. So I went to Chapel Hill undergraduate. I was a, a lacrosse player there. UNC. So I kind of hate Duke, um, but I've gotten to know Coach K over the years, the, the legendary basketball coach. So one time I was having dinner with him and he said, Doug, let me tell you a story about Michael Jordan. When I was the assistant to the assistant coach on the Olympic team in the 90s, the first day of practice, Michael Jordan comes up to me and says, Coach, could I meet you after practice? And he thinks, oh my gosh, the greatest that's ever played the game wants to have a Duke guy slap balls for him. So he meets him afterwards. Michael Jordan says this to him, says, Coach K, I think you understand the mechanics of the jump shot better than anybody in basketball. I want to get better. I would say for leaders on this call, for CEOs, for others aspiring to be, we need a Coach K in our life that tells us the truth, even if we think we're smart and capable. This is what true friends are for, to give you a perspective. But I think we have this epidemic. People are, the suicide rate has just soared since this COVID crisis in March. Uh, people are lonely. People are fearful. They don't know who they can trust anymore. And we have, to, and so much of this, the mediating structures are gone, the family, the community, the religious institute, all the things that the Tocqueville observed when he came to this country in the 18th century and said, the greatness of America is not in its physical resources. It's in these, the way people connect, these small groups, you know, the literary societies, the book clubs, the oratory societies, the churches, all these things. These are really important, but sadly, 
If you go to a PTA meeting, they used to be vibrant. Now people don't have the time. There's the, the so so I think we have a crisis. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I use that. And I think the workplace, if we had time to, I think the workplace is the place where thriving can, can go on. It's one of the few places where people still connect in some manner. And we have to use that to help us become better versions of us. And real, that's why my book's all about an integrative model, that you aren't a business person over here and a human person over here. Wouldn't it be magical to bring the whole thing together? That we, who we are privately is who we are publicly. That our business self is the same as our personal self. That's the aspirational goal I would have for myself and others. Great. Doug, I wanna quickly turn here to a chapter late in your book, which has an intriguing title and I read it with great interest. It, it doesn't, sort of, I would not have expected it, I guess I'll put it that way, in a book uh, on <laughs> finding success and rethinking everything, and that is inviting risk into your life. Yeah. How can we think of risk as something we want to get out of our life? So help us understand <laughs> why we got to get more of that. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right, Mike, and I talk about in the book some, some encounters I've had with risky people and risky behaviors of people that is really destructive. We all have, again, in my book, I talk about how we're born into a story and the way your parents viewed risk is gonna determine a lot of how you view things. If, if everything about your family was security, 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 you're probably not gonna take that new opportunity with that new venture capital firm because you're afraid, you know, this, this thing in your mind is, wow, I work for a HHS, a government agency, and that's secure and all the things I've yep. been told. So, so you've got, but here's the thought I have, Mike. If you're not risking, you're not growing. And that doesn't have to be in monumental ways where you start to you know, jump out of airplanes and do things, but in little ways, <laughs> small ways where you start to push yourself to do things. I mean, if some of you that have played sports, if you deter, if you go into a game to say, my goal in life is not to get hurt, or, the goal in this game is not to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. We need, and if you go to mo the people that have aged well, I have a friend named Dr. Steve Franklin. He used to be the uh, dean at the uh, business school at Emory down in Atlanta. He interviewed over 300 pe uh, people 100 years or older. Unbelievable. And these people are incredible. But one thing they had in common, they never stopped growing. They never stopped taking risks. If you go to assist, I used to be on the board of an assisted living thing, Sunrise Senior Living. You go in there and you can see the people that are still interested. You know, I want to learn to play this little game. I want to learn. I'm going to start an exercise. I'm going to start walking. I'm going to, it doesn't have to be dramatic, but to really break those patterns. Patterns are familiar, but they can be dangerous. A lot of us are drawn to the very patterns that were destructive in our parents' lives and our siblings' lives. So we have to figure out what are those new things we wanna do, those new habits of the heart, new habits of practice that really will bring us uh, meaning and, and purpose. Um, I, was walk I was having lunch with a good friend of mine was on the path north uh, board, former secretary of the Navy, John Dalton, who's a Wharton graduate. We're walking down the street 
and a homeless guy comes up and I just have a practice to always give them. I don't, I don't question whatever. Some of us, we all disagree and have different views on that, but I just gave him some money. And Secretary Dalton stopped me and he said, Doug, you know how you can make this a much more meaningful experience? I said, how, John? He said, ask that person their name and their story. And I tell you, I started doing that. So I was up, when I was working on this book, I was staying at uh, my, my sister and her husband, they live in San Francisco, but they have a place in Portland. And I was up in Portland and I, I go up there every summer for a week. And I always see this one homeless guy. He's out in front of the CVS and I always avoid him. And then this year I said, no, I'm gonna do what John Dalton said. So I go up to him, I said, you know, I've seen you here for years. And here's some money, but do you have a minute I could talk to you? And he said, how did you get here? How did this work? What's your name? He tells me his name and says, well, he says, I was a seasonal worker and I, I went all over the place. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I started developing back problems. Then they became more acute. I have no health care. I don't want to be doing this. I want to be working. I can't. This is what's left to me. So I went... And I realized this in so many areas of life, I went from, from really skepticism and fear and judgment to great compassion and saying, but, but, but for the grace of God, I'm right there. But it took, it took Mike a risk. It took a little risk. Yeah. So I'd say to the listeners here, you know, if you have a journal, if you don't, I'd urge you to do it. Write down a couple little things you could do that would say to yourself, I want to keep growing. I want to keep changing. I, want, I used to play the guitar. I'm going to pick that up again. I used to play the piano. One of the things I asked my MBA class is that how many of you had something you loved in your life? Tap dancing, ballet, singing, piano, writing poetry. <laughs> All 40 of them raised their hand. How many of you are still doing it? Probably three. <laughs> Why? We live in a celebrity culture. So if I play the guitar and if I'm not as good as Jimi Hendrix, I'll stop. <laughs> Why can't we just love things for the sheer joy of how that feeds our soul, how that brings us meaning? But that requires risk. That requires going against conventionality and not saying I'm going to play the piano like Rachmaninoff. You know, I'm going to play Happy Birthday maybe on the piano. <laughs> so, so I think this risk thing is really central to human thriving. And it, it can be documented. And you, you, when you look at the people who are joyful and find meaning, oh, my sister's one of them. Oh, my gosh. So what did she do during COVID? She decided to write a, she was the top pattern designer at Vogue, but she decided to write uh, a cookbook and a children's book. And she, she and her husband are so happy in life because they're always finding new ways to push the envelope to try. She called me yesterday and said, Doug, because I introduced her to Ethiopia. It's a place I've been going out of my comfort zone for decades. She said, Doug, can you figure out, you, you, you're wired into all these people on foreign policy and stuff. Why don't you and I spend a month and help vaccinate people in, Af in East Africa? I said, wow, Sandra. <laughs> She's pushing me. I don't know if I want to do that. But, <laughs> but she just wants to keep growing, wants to keep pushing the envelope. So I'd say whatever it is, 
you know, people talk about their bucket list, but that can be daunting. The bucket list, I'm going to write, I'm going to circumnavigate the globe. Yeah, that's great. Why don't you start with something small? There's a great YouTube thing look at. It's called, it's the oldest yoga teacher in America. She just died, I think, last year. She's 98 in Connecticut, was teaching yoga. But what was amazing to me about this documentary, right? She's not just messing around. She's a serious yoga thing. But what I loved was at 89, her life was a little boring. So she took up fricking ballroom dancing. And they had they showed her with her partner. Oh my gosh. She was she was not tottering around. She was doing the real thing. Yeah, it's great. And this woman was so alive. Anyway, I'm sorry to get off on, but I think risk is hugely important to us. All right. We definitely want it. Jeff, why don't you jump in? All right. Well, so, you know, the, the conversation that we're having, what, what it leads me to think about, and, and you write a chapter about this in the book as well, Doug, is, you know, notions of success and, and how we really start to picture success. And yeah, the, the maybe the way I want to ask you this question, um, we, we have a, a wonderful colleague here at Wharton, a guy named Richard Shell, who wrote a book called Springboard a couple years ago. And it, it really tries to give students a pathway to envisioning success yeah. um, in the way that you're describing. One of the, um, you know, for me, one of the surprising outcomes of the book is that when students would get together and they would read it and talk with each other, they would discover something. And that was that each person's conceptualization of success was different. Yes. And they came into these conversations believing everybody was on the same path. Everybody had the same markers along the way. And coming yeah. out of these conversations, they describe almost how freeing it was to hear that everyone's pathway looked different, yeah. right? And had different yeah. markers on it. So, so I, yeah, yeah. You know, for you, for I, I wonder as you're in these conversations with MBA students and as you're thinking about advice for our listeners. How do you start to create your own definition of success? That's a great question. And I really appreciate that, Jeff. I think a lot of it is understanding your story. So the first time I, this, the light came on, you know, Peter Buffett's a friend of mine, Warren Buffett's son. So we were together and, and Peter leaned over to me and he said this. He said, Doug, you know, we're all born into someone else's story. And he said, here I am at Stanford, my sophomore year. I'm taking finance. I hate my life. I hate everything about it. The only reason I'm at Stanford is because of my last name. And then my father famously announced that he wasn't going to leave us any money, the three siblings. He said, that kind of sucked. And then he said, um, but you know what happened? About six months later, my mother called and said, my grandfather died and left me some money, left me $92,000. He said, that day I packed my car in Palo Alto and drove, started driving to New York City, never turned back, and pursued my view of success, my view of fulfillment, which was in music. And he's done that his whole life. And um, we could get into a lot of things about that, but, but you know, it was amazing. He's done pretty well. He uh, did part of the score for Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner and things. But I think, I think, the starting place, Jeff, is to understand our story. How did our parents, you know, that's why you need a journal to sit down and say, when around our dinner table, what was value? What was prize? Was it education? Was it work? 
Was it never whining? Was it never, was it, what, what was celebrated? Was it raging and anger? All of these data points are really important for you because they are going to determine how you view a successful marriage, how you view a successful child rearing, how you view success monetarily, what is security. All of those clues are there. So much of you is already knowable. So my view is point one to change. You've got to look at the narrative you're born into full stop. Once you know that said, how do I make other choices? How do I, how, and it requires being brave. It's like the E.E. E. Cummings quote. He said, being yourself in a world that's telling you every day to be anything but yourself is the bravest thing any of us could ever do. So we ha it requires bravery, in my judgment, Jeff, to, to create that new version of success. But the other thing, once you get that, I think it's really important to realize that the only success that's permanent, that's lasting, it's not how fit you are, how rich you are, all those things are gonna go. At the end of the day, you've gotta be really comfortable with you. And so I'd say the best thing you can do for yourself, for your company, for your net worth, for your family, for your spouse, is to become the very best version of you. That makes it so much simpler. Because if you have, if you're always defining it by external fact, there's always somebody richer, smarter, whatever it is, more credential. It, it, it's, it's a fool's errand. And, but success defined internally is an entirely different thing. And you are free in a way that is unimaginable. So, Doug, I'm going to I'm going to quickly remind everybody that uh, we are together listening to you, Doug Holliday. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Mike Usain, and uh, Doug's new book it's it's a very good read, Rethinking Success: Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. And just my slight editorial addition on that, and then over to Anne. Uh, I've just written down. Make certain that you are the best version of you. I really like that. And yeah. all right, thank you, Mike and Doug. I I so appreciate this uh, conversation that we're having. You're speaking my language here. So at high thank level, you. high level meaning is found, not necessarily given. And moreover, we're born into a narrative, but each of us has the opportunity to write our own lives. So I'd like to ask you a little bit, and this anticipates the conclusion of your book, for us and for our listeners, what are some, what would be high level advice that you would give us as we try to navigate our way? Yeah, I, I would say uh, start small. I think so many people, you know, try to boil the ocean. They say, oh, I'm gonna transform the whole way I think and all these patterns are really entrenched. So to change, change is tough, but you know, to be truthful is the beginning. So I'd say if you don't have a journal, have that. I'd say next thing is create space in your life to think. In 1666, Pascal in his little unfinished book in French, Ponce's Thoughts, he said this, the fundamental problem of a person is never learning to be alone within four walls. 
I take 16 <laughs> CEOs every year to a, a, a monastery where they chant still. And we spend three days in silence together. It's transformational for people. But I, I would not go that far with you on the call here. I'd say start small. Say, I'm going to take two minutes and just be still. So my practice, every, I try to do it every day, probably get to it about five, is so I'll have Gregorian chant on. And I have that going. And I'm just still. And I breathe. And then I go through another great exercise, and this is neuroscientists say it changes the brain when you're grateful. You and I don't have to make a list of the stuff that sucks in our life. We know that. We wake up at 3 o'clock, oh, my God, how am I going to pay for this or do this? We know that stuff. So you have to create space in that forest of negativity and say, wow, I just had a great cup of dark roast Italian coffee. <laughs> I had a great conversation with my mother. I usually don't, you know, whatever it is. So you put, you write those things down. I could show you my journal every year. I do that. I try to write down three to five a day. The end of the year, I have hundreds, almost a thousand of little things. And then I laminate my pages. <laughs> so, so there, there's that part. Then I, you know, you become what you think about. I write down some things that are really important to me that I'm either hoping the best for or praying for and just, just put those in my brain. There's something subconscious that goes on like that. And uh, so I think things like that and, and be reading things. I'm reading a book on Yates, a scholar that I know has done a lot on Yates sent me that. Keep, I wanna keep pressing, growing, being uncomfortable learning things that are new for me. Uh, you know, I was on the Morehouse College Board for 14 years, an African-American all-male school in Atlanta. Why did I want to do that? I wanted to be in a situation where I was a minority. So I, I try to find ways that you can bring risk and growth into your narrative. I mean, and, and it's all starts small, but it all starts in my judgment and by creating the space to think. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. So many of us are, are so connected. I mean, a big deal, I make my class do it. Oh my gosh, it's like I, I ask them to take poison. I say, I, I ask them to do two things. One is for the next two hours, you're going off by yourself with no technology, no people, just with yourself. When have any of us done that? Um, it's really powerful. And uh, start to get comfortable with that. We're so afraid of what's going to surface, these demons that are in our life. But they don't go away until we've had, The truth will set us free. When we start to look at those demons face to face, one of the powerful things that a lot of people don't know, the first task with allegorical, you know, the, in the book, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the first task that Adam and Eve were given was to name the animals. Now, in, in biblical terms, naming something gives you control and power over it. When we name our demons, we get power over them. So a lot of us don't want to name them. We're running from our demons. But if instead of doing that, we would step up. So what does all this have to do with business? You're bringing that stuff, all the crap, the good and the bad and the ugly to the workplace every day. So I'd say to you, 
you know, get a life, spend time on you, do these little practices, and you will be a killer business person. Your imagination <laughs> will soar. You'll start finding solutions no one ever thought of. All right, Doug. That's, that's great, Doug. Thank you. This, this has been great. I, I want to I want to reiterate that last phrase, get a life. I think we're, we're, all, we're all in that club and we're working on that. Now is our time to pull a, a final few threads out. What we'd really like everybody to remember from our conversation with you, Doug, why don't you start? We've got about a minute each at most. The after action review, looking backwards to look forward. What's the main point you'd like people to stick with? Um, that, that your point of identity with everyone on this call, that everyone you meet is not your strength, but your weakness. Embrace your frailty. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the most gifted. Be you in an odd way. That will be the connect, connecting tissue with everyone you meet. We all think we're frauds. We all know we're overrated. We all know that. But use that to your advantage. Don't yeah. run from it and try to be fake. So I'd say that's first step. Be People don't want, you don't have to be a perfect leader. What people are longing for is authenticity. Aren't we tired of these cardboard cutout leaders that say, if I have failed in my life, you know, it's all that crap. They just, we just want to hear authenticity and see it firsthand. That's, so I'd say that would be the first, that's the starting place. Realize you don't have to be the greatest. Just be you. Everyone else is taken. Got it. Write that down, everybody. Anne, how about you? All right, I can do this super fast, Mike. First, uh, rather than look for meaning in things, uh, create the meaning, find it. Uh, try to write your own life, write the ending of the story, leave a legacy. And finally, strive to be the best version of yourself. And if I borrow from Carol Dweck, that's not a fixed version, an ideal self, but rather a process that we are always striving for. All right, and very good, Jeff. I, I think for me, Mike, what I'm, what I'm really left thinking about is the role of risk uh, and the role of discovery in our lives. And beyond that, how much of what we're learning and what we're, what we're experiencing, uh, we can share with others and bring others into. Yep, well put. Here's my line. The phrase that I would uh, sort of put there at, at the top of uh, the line is get to the edge, get to the edge. Life's got edges. And if we get to it, we can um, look over, see the unknown, take a few risks, learn about ourselves. And I'm reminded of a person that we met in the Himalayas, believe it or not, some time ago, a guy named Jim Whitaker. Mountaineers will know the name because he was the first American to summit Mount Everest back in 1963. We encountered him on a trail heading up to Everest Base Camp, and I've got his quote right here. He said, if you're not on the edge, you're taking up space, <laughs> which is a way of saying you got to do it for yourself, but you got to do it for others around you. So, Doug, it's been great having you on the program. Best wishes uh, with your book in the future. Uh, for people to, For people to learn more about you, is there a website or a place you'd send them? Yeah, there, there's, uh, well, one is uh, Path North. They can look that up. That's a, yep. uh, a nonprofit I started for business owners and, and CEOs and others in comparable positions. 
who are really struggling with this puzzle, as Freud called it, you know, the, the puzzle of life. And so we try to do it together. The other is I've got a, um, you know, there's a landing page for my book, which is www.dougholliday.com. There's a lot of interviews that I've done with um, uh, different financial institutions and all kinds of craziness on there. But um, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd leave you with one quote if I can, Mike. Um, Please. It, it's a great quote by Mark Twain who said this. He said, he said, the two greatest days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. <laughs> I, think, I think what I'd say for us in this call today and in my book, and I think the journey is the why questions, getting comfortable with the messy why questions and not running from them because particularly analytical people want to find certainty. And there is such a fricking myth of certainty. It doesn't exist. If the pandemic told us anything, get over it, get comfortable with mystery, get comfortable with risk, get comfortable with craziness, and you will be free indeed. All right, Doug, that's a great note to end on. I want to remind listeners, you know where to find us, business radio at SiriusXM.com. Follow our show on Twitter, of course. Special thanks again to you, Doug Holliday, for joining us. Uh, best wishes for your book. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. I'm Mike Yuseem, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 